Most people who know me know that I've struggled with sleep. From working too much when I was younger, to working night shifts, to just not being the best sleeper. I've struggled with sleep for most of my adult life. And that's why I was so excited when Elizabeth Knight reached out and wanted to come on to the podcast to talk about sleep. Elizabeth is a nurse practitioner and a health coach, and she works with runners to help them improve their health and their running so they can enjoy the sport that we all love. Elizabeth and I sat down for over an hour to talk about why sleep matters, what you can do to improve it, and just some basic tips for getting more out of your running from sleeping better. If you think you might be skimping on sleep and it might be affecting your training, you're probably right. So I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. And if you do find this episode helpful, I'd appreciate it if you had took a second to rate or review it, and or even better, just share it with somebody who needs to hear it. I make this podcast so more people can have free information so they can live happier lives and run better. So if you just shared it with somebody, I'd really appreciate it. So let's get to the episode on sleep with Elizabeth Knight. Welcome to the Eat Well, Sleep Great, Run Far podcast. My name is Will Franz, and I'm here to help you go farther, faster, and longer without injuries, gut problems, or giving up your favorite foods. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. This week, we have Elizabeth Knight. She is a nurse practitioner and health coach, and I'm happy to have her here to talk about some general things about health, and specifically, we're going to dive into sleep today. So Elizabeth, happy to have you. How did you get into doing what you're doing? Yeah, I'm so happy to be here, Will. Thanks for having me. So uh, like you said, I'm a nurse practitioner, a family nurse practitioner, so primary care. And I also um, am a health coach who works specifically with runners and other sort of everyday athletes. And what that means, a lot of people aren't familiar with what with what health coaching means, um, is that I help people sort of take a, a 10,000 foot view of their health overall, different areas of their health, and what their specific personal sort of goals and values are around health, and then help them work on um, making specific goals and plans to support those things. And that tends to include things like focusing on sleep, on nutrition, on sometimes it is um, their running goals and, and doing more specific run coaching, but other things surrounding that, like other types of exercise and movement, and then things like um, their relationships and their stress management sure. and how all of those things come together. Yeah. Awesome. How did you get started into that? And yeah, how did you get started in the health coaching world? Yeah. So um, I have, like I said, been working in primary care for a number of years. And um, during the early pandemic, I was finding that I really um, 
needed to find a different approach to working with people in the health space. Um, it just became, I think, a lot for me to try to sort of envision everything in this sort of crisis mode, respond, respond, disease focus. Um, and, you know, I, I still work in that setting part time, but to have a, a space where I really get to work with individual people on making positive changes and, and positive goals, as opposed to just responding to the sort of terrible things that are happening to them. Um, it's just, it feels like a really different way of approaching health and healthcare. So it's not just that kind of illness care, sick care, disease care model um, that we get trained in as healthcare providers. And it's just such a positive thing. And I think that a lot of people really need that and they really value it. Um, and working in that space has been just really rewarding for me. And also because I'm a runner and an athlete myself, sort of being able to share that with people um, in the context of, you know, being a trusted advisor is um, a really nice place to be working. That's awesome. Yeah, I know like a lot of people who listen to this probably know that I kind of got into the whole fitness and health space as a result of my dad dying many years, like six years ago. And like, yeah, watching that whole thing go down, I can tell you that, you know, nobody needs to be a part of that longer than they need to. So I can definitely see why you'd want to step away from that and do some of your own stuff from the actual like healthcare perspective. Yeah, absolutely. It's been it's been a really nice way to balance those things um, to be able to you know use my expertise in that more um, disease space when it's necessary, um, but also to be able to bring all of that experience that I have in in managing illness into managing health um, and and really working that way. And it's been it's been a great transition for me to be able to do both. That's awesome. How did you get into running? Yeah, I actually took up running when I was in nursing school. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people don't really realize how challenging nursing school is. It's a ton of science, right? It's you do, you do biochemistry, oh, yeah. you do. It's you know, yeah, it's a lot. It's science, it's math. And then it's also just this intense human focus of it. And I think, you know, um, being young and also being in a, in this intense academic setting. And then on top of that, you know, being in a clinical setting, which you do in nursing school, you do clinical rotations and, and you're dealing with sick people and you're dealing just with sort of the entire breadth of humanity. And uh, that's a lot to, to sort of learn and adapt to. And, you know, like the first time you see somebody who's really sick and really suffering and, you know, you're touching that person and you're in the room with that person, it takes a lot of processing and a lot of growth. Um, and anybody who is, uh, you know, a dedicated runner knows the healing power of spending some time out on the road or the trail just by yourself um, and sort of letting your brain catch up and process. And so I started running at that time in my life really to fill that space. Um, and then I took it with me through graduate school um, when I did my nurse practitioner training and I eventually um, got my, my research doctorate in nursing as well. And just having that outlet was wonderful. And then I got into it, I think, even deeper in the past few years um, is when I started working with a coach and I did my first ultra last year. And um, I think coming through the pandemic, like I was talking about earlier and sort of switching out of being in, um, you know, healthcare system mode and into this sort of new space of working, you know, in health and working in fitness and working in, you know, this glorious space where, where people are doing the things they want to be doing. Um, it, it just sort of took off for me and I've been, you know, really, uh, entrenched in this space since then. 
That's awesome. Which altar do you end up uh, I did the Perpetua Coast 50K out in Oregon. Um, oh, yeah. It was a wonderful race. Yes, beautiful race, 50K, um, a lot of ups and downs, but these incredible sort of sweeping views of the coastline and then these incredible forest trails. And yeah, it was really um, uh, just, I, I don't even know if I have words for it. This It's that great thing about trail running, right? Which is that you're working yeah. so hard, that, but it's so beautiful that you almost forget that you're suffering. <laughs> I feel like that's... A perfect description of how that goes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, I wanted to ask first before we get into like all the sleep stuff. Um, I see that you often uh, like in multiple of your platforms, you label yourself as like an evidence-based practitioner, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I come largely from like the nutrition space. Before, that's where I kind of started out. And there you see so many evidence-based people who are still feeding I don't, I don't know if i'd call them lying but many of them are still lying and like you have some people like saladino with the carnivore diet and then there's like gregor with the vegan troop and they both have published books with like hundreds of citations i think there's like over 300 and paul's and 600 and gregor's and like i don't actually need you to call out either of them because i'll do that plenty on my own but i do want to ask like how how the hell do we know who's being honest and who's just like feeding a bunch of bullshit in the space? How do we separate the people like that from like the Lane Nortons who are pushing out as much citation without like actually well-intentioned? Yeah. You know, I, I'm so glad you asked me that, Will, because this is a, an area that I'm really passionate about is, is talking about science and evidence and how these things can be used appropriately and how they can be used inappropriately and, um, so just a little bit of background about me. So I I have a PhD in nursing science. So I am trained, you know, in the research world. And um, when we do academic work and write academic papers in um, that space, you, you review evidence in a, in a way that's very specific. And that means you have to look at the totality of what's published on a topic. And um, that usually isn't sort of neat right? It's very messy. There's usually all kinds of things all over the place. And there are studies that are designed in specific ways to show specific things. And, you know, that's the way the study was sort of conceived of because the author wanted to find a particular outcome and that can happen. And that can happen in an individual study. And that doesn't mean that the study doesn't show that or that it, or that the author is lying, but it means usually that it's a very specific way um, that something was tested in a very specific context in a very specific group of people with a very specific outcome that they measured. And they may come to certain conclusions about that that are um, correct or incorrect in a broader sense. But Either way, it's it's one study. And any study can probably find anything, right? And oh, so yeah. if you if you want to look for um the true sort of answers from science, I think the first thing is that you have to take a much broader lens and look not at any individual study, but at all of what's out there and look for trends in that. And a great way to do that if you're a consumer and not a scientist where you maybe can't understand the, you know, the specific difference in study design that's going to show you this or that and what statistical analysis was done in which particular order. Um, Look for a systematic review 
And that term systematic um, implies that this process was done where the authors searched through all the existing evidence on a topic and they use a specific protocol to do that. So they're not doing, you know, what would be considered that cherry picking of like, look, see, I found a study that proves my point. Um, and instead yeah. they're saying, what does the overall body of literature show? So that's one um, one really sort of important thing to to, to do. And then I think another thing is that it, if even just you're reading um, sort of in, in like a newspaper or a popular book, um, scientists who are really ethical and truly interested in truth seeking will very rarely make these um, bold and concrete statements, you know this is the absolute truth about something. They'll say, well, it appears from the existing evidence that it's most likely that. And that type of thing isn't weaseling, right? It's saying <laughs> this is this is as much certainty as we can generate with the techniques that we have, um, scientifically speaking. And so when I say that I practice based on evidence, um, I will look at a variety of, of research on a particular topic and I'll look for the, for those systematic reviews and I'll look for the sort of the totality of, of evidence on something. And that sometimes means that what I do isn't necessarily the most like quote cutting edge, right? So a study came out last week that shows, you know, that, you know, in diabetic mice using a half a gram of this particular compound will change their blood sugar and they lived 12 minutes longer. So I'm going to prescribe that to all my patients. And, you know, there are people who, who sort of practice that way. And <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I just made that up. It's ridiculous, but it's not that ridiculous. It's you know, not that it's far way, off though. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so, I will oftentimes sort of wait and see, you know, what is going to come out across this as we see it in more um, situations that are more relevant to um, the actual practice of, of what I'm doing and the types of people I'm working with and the situations they're working in. So it's kind of a high level um, discussion of, of, yeah. of evidence and, and what that means. But, but so yes, when you see those um, uh, authors who have an agenda, right. And then they go back and they say, well, let me find studies that are going to support this agenda. That's a a really, really different approach from saying, I want to, I want to put out everything that I can find on this topic and see, you know, what buckets that evidence falls into. And that's the more scientific evidence-based approach from my perspective. Absolutely. And I think like you often end up in this issue with like two different things about human personality coming into conflict here, where mm -hmm the more you know about a topic, like the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? So the more you know exactly. about the topic, often the more wishy-washy you sound <laughs> about it, because the more you learn about it, you end up with realizing the less you know. <laughs> it's like in the totality of evidence, whereas like as humans, we love certainty. So this person out there who knows nothing, <laughs> like one thing and is willing to push that as hard as he or she can, ends up being very trusted because he sounds very certain and yet, yet the person who actually knows a bunch ends up sounding like he doesn't know anything because it's like every question requires a 30 minute response because it's so complicated yeah yeah and, you know i say this all the time and it is sort of a, a running joke about it but the the most common answer i give to any question is it depends um every coach in the world who's worth their salt <laughs> right like it's totally yeah. true <laughs> Yeah, and that that comes from a place of of you know being humble about the limits of the knowledge that we have, um, which again I think is the mark of a really ethical practitioner or scientist. Agreed. Well, we'll move forward so I don't like bore everybody to death, but I appreciate that you like take that perspective, and I think it's a really important thing to do. So let's talk a little bit about sleep because 
I don't know. I talk about it intermittently, but we haven't had a dedicated episode to this in a while. So sleep. Why does sleep matter? Not just in general, but also to us specifically as athletes and as runners. Yeah, you know, it, it's right there in the title, right? Well, sleep great. And I love this one because I, I just love that you have it in there because it, to me in, in my dual roles as um, a primary care provider and as a coach for athletes, I see sleep as basically the master switch. And I think it's really undervalued. But when somebody comes to me really in either context and they're like, feeling lousy or they're wanting to make progress, it, this is oftentimes the first thing that I say, well, let's look at your sleep because it can tell us so much about what's going on with that person. So, you know, I prescribe exercise for sleep problems and I prescribe sleep for exercise problems, right? And so I think these two work really, really well together. Um, it's also, you know, just this, this broad, I, if there's a panacea, you know, I think it's sleep, it helps mental health, it helps physical health. Um, and it feels good, right? Which I, not everything that's helpful for our health feels good, um, but, but sleep, sleep does. Um, and then, you know, just broadly, you know, I, I won't go into, you know, hours of scientific evidence about sleep because, you know, we don't have all day, but I, I could. Um, and if yeah. you're interested in that, so, you know, send me a message and I'll just give you the, the lowdown. But um, for athletes in particular, um, we know that uh, loss of sleep is associated with increased perception of effort. So if you are underslept, everything feels harder. And so that means that your training isn't going to be as effective. And it means that your racing isn't going to be as effective. Um, also decreased sleep, uh, is just plain old associated with injury. And, you know, we don't know whether that's for a particular reason, all of the mechanisms haven't necessarily been um, spelled out in, in clear research studies, but there's lots of reasons why that might be, right? If you're um, experiencing lack of sleep, your coordination isn't what it ought to be. And so that's one way that you could have injury. And then the other one, which I think is really important is that um, muscle and tissue repair happens during sleep. And so if those things aren't happening as the way that they're supposed to, uh, your risk of injury would go up you know, hypothetically, theoretically. And so that's another mechanism that potentially explains that effect that we've seen. Um, yeah, I that think, makes a lot of sense. I yeah. mean, if you're, if you have a bunch of people trying to hack their food to produce like slightly more whatever growth hormone, and yet you're getting four hours of sleep at night. So you can't produce growth hormone and that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, exactly. So growth hormone is a great example. Growth hormone and testosterone, those are steroid hormones that the body makes are, are synthesized and released during deep sleep or slow wave sleep, which is that stage three and four sleep and um, late in the sleep cycle. And those are things that people use you know, in synthetic illegal forms to enhance their performance, right? And so oh, yes. your body makes those things for mm -hmm. you if you sleep appropriately. And so, you know, why would you go through all of this trouble of, of doing illegal and dangerous things to get those substances into your body when all you need to do is sleep better and it will happen. Um, so that means that you need both enough sleep and you need high quality sleep because to get into that slow wave sleep, you can't just be dozing off here and there. You have to be, you know, attending to sleeping in a really quality way. And if you do that, you'll really reap the benefits. And so that's, you know, the uh, one way that the um, athlete really benefits from high quality sleep. That makes a ton of sense. And yeah, I feel like we could 
push hormones forever. And yet, if you're not like actually getting the sleep to help you utilize them, it doesn't make any sense. It's just not yeah. going to do its job. Yeah. So, that's kind of a workaround. A hundred percent. And like, it's just not sustainable. So on that note, like how much sleep do people need in order to be successful in what they're trying to do? Okay. Ready? It depends. <laughs> Always. Um, so, uh, you know, a good baseline for, uh, an otherwise healthy adult is somewhere between seven and nine hours of sleep a night. Um, that doesn't mean that that's right for everybody. And that's also a really wide window. Um, and I would say that for athletes, especially for athletes who are training hard. So, you know, your trail and ultra athletes who like you and me and the people who are probably listening to this podcast probably need more on that end rather than less. And as you go through a training cycle, if you're, you know, peaking at a higher mileage, if you're adding more stress, more, um, uh, hours of training, your sleep needs will go up as well. But I would say for most people, you know, you can use that as a general guideline, but then you need to just pay attention to yourself and, and the feedback that you get from your body. And, uh, the best way to tell, Hey, how am I doing on sleep is how do you feel when you wake up in the morning? And if you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, I could sleep for two more hours, you might need two more hours of sleep. But if you wake up in the morning and you feel good consistently and you're feeling alert throughout the day and you're not feeling groggy and you're feeling like you're generally able to stay awake and function well, um, that's a good measure that you're probably getting a good amount of sleep. Um but you do have to pay deliberate attention to that because I think yeah. a lot of people are going through chronically underslept and they've just gotten used to it. And that's not the same Agreed. thing as actually having a sufficient amount of sleep for you. So it takes that sort of um, moment of honesty with yourself and, and to say like, how do I actually feel? And if you're not sure, if you think you might be getting enough, but you're not sure, I would suggest try bumping it up a little at a time, like even, you know, 15 minutes at a time and see. Um, and rather than saying how little sleep can I get away with, try saying, if I add a little bit, how does that go? And I, that's a hard shift to make for a lot of people, right? Because you have and to, yeah. you have to make um, some trade-offs for that. Most of us don't have an extra hour sitting around that we're like, well, let's just use that on sleep, right? It would be, for you sure. have to give up something else to give yourself extra sleep. But I do, I think that's a really powerful strategy for some people is to say, well, let's try adding more sleep until I think I've gotten to the best I can be instead of saying like, no, I think I'm fine. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, I feel like you're often the, as in like the general you, you are the often the first person you're going to lie to. You're going to lie to yourself first, right? Because like you have people out there like Jocko Willink who needs less. Um, there's, there's a very few like subset of genetic freaks who need less sleep. And then there's also like, I mean, LeBron James sleeps like 10 hours a, a night or something like that. And I think the fact that we are often like the fact that there are these examples out there, people who don't quite need as much <laughs> lead some of us to like, ah, we're fine. <laughs> Whereas, like, and I was one of those people for a decade and a half, right? Like I got five, about an average of five hours a night and it thought I was okay. And like, if I was honest, I was tired all the time. And like, once I started yeah. playing with it more, I need more like seven and change. And that's kind of my sweet spot. And I think if more people, took the time to do what you said, like slowly add some more and see where they actually fall on the, on the rested scale. They might learn that they've been not fully honest with themselves for the better part of years. Yeah. Do you feel better now that you're sleeping more? 
Yeah, definitely. Like not even a question. I have tried the like eight to nine hours though. And I feel groggy on the other end. So like, that mm-hmm. seems to be too much to me, but like somewhere around the seven mark, I, I'm much better than when I'm at five. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's a great point is that there's a, usually a sweet spot, right? And there, there is such thing as too much and there's such thing as too little, but you won't find those boundaries if you don't try. Um, yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. You know, something that I say all the time in my coaching practice is that you have to approach yourself with curiosity and not with judgment to say, I wonder what would happen if I slept for eight hours instead of seven hours, instead of saying like, nope, I can't do it. I don't need to. I'm fine. Uh, You know, it's like, where does that come from? Did that comes from this sort of cultural pressure of like hustle, hustle, sleep when I'm dead. Um, I've got other stuff to do. And, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, that's not necessarily serving you. And if you say, well, what if I give it a try? Um, I think that's you though, because it requires this mindset shift, right? It requires a shift aside from what can I get away with to what would be the best thing for me. And that's hard, right? It requires focusing oh, yeah. on yourself in a way that we might've been sort of conditioned to believe is selfish or uh, lazy or all of these other sort of judgment words that are, that yes. are not helpful. Absolutely. So yeah, I think the curiosity, not judgment, is one of the most important things people can do. That's really all you can do. You're constantly an experiment of of one, and you just got to figure it out. It's always this pursuit towards growth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, we don't know what's going to help us necessarily unless we try. And we can go back to evidence and say there are certain things that appear to be largely helpful for most people. And if you don't try it on yourself, though, you won't know if it's going to help you or not. Um, and so, 100%. you know, yeah, in, in coaching, and I'm sure this is in your coaching practice as well. A lot of what we have to do isn't to tell people like, well, here's the answer of what you need to do. It's to say, you already know that, right? You already know what what a good step for you might be. And it's to say, how do we start taking those steps in that direction and, and see how it works for us? Very, very true. So if we're looking at what might be a good first step for someone to take to start to modify or adjust their sleep schedule, like what would that be? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say for people who are struggling with sleep, um, a good way to think about it is in three categories. And I like to think about this as there's body noise and there's brain noise and there's bed noise, right? Those are the three kinds of things that can, that can be bothering us. And so I I think starting with your body is a great place um, for most people. And so this is like, are there things, sensations in your body or medical issues that are interfering with your ability to sleep. And this is before we get worried about, you know, all of the behavioral stuff around, you know, what's going on with your, your schedule. It's like, let's just start with the, the basics there. And sometimes this means you just need a quick medical screening, right? There are definitely medical things that can be involved in this. Um, it's very, very common to have sleep apnea, um, that can interfere with sleep or something like restless leg syndrome can interfere with sleep. There are medications that interfere with sleep and they're not necessarily things that you might think of. Like we know that for instance, stimulant medications that people might take for ADHD or like Sudafed, um, those are stimulant type of medications that can interfere with sleep. Um, but so can some other things that you might not think about, um, 
beta blockers or mm-hmm. um, like diuretics that you might be taking for blood pressure or for other reasons can interfere with your sleep, things like that. So um, mm-hmm. if you haven't had a visit with a medical professional and talked about this, that might be a place to start um, if sleep is something that you struggle with. Um, pain can also be a huge issue for people. If you have chronic pain, if you have musculoskeletal pain that's keeping you up at night, that sometimes getting that addressed can really improve your sleep. So I, I don't skip over that piece. Um, if, if sleep is a struggle for you of saying like, what's going on in my body that we might be able to improve. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think we've all probably been there after a, a fall or a tweak, like it can be tough to fall asleep if your knees in pain. So if there's like even smaller stuff that's twinging at you, then that you don't even notice anymore, of course it might be affecting your sleep. Yeah. Yeah. So, so take care of those, those things. And usually those body noise things are reasonably um, uh, fixable, right? Or at least they could be identified and you can get a plan for that. So that would be something to do. The next category I think is a little bit harder, and this is what I would call the the brain noise category. So um, people who ruminate, right? You you're waking up at two in the morning and you're like, Oh, I have a work thing and it's stressing me out and I can't let it go or whatever else it is for you. And that can really disrupt sleep for people as well. And so I think the first step to fixing that one is just identifying like, Oh, is that me? (laughs) Am I doing that? I think you probably have a lot of people listening to this who might be in that category, considering a lot of ultra runners are a little type A. And if they tend to ruminate, I'm one of them. So yeah, I feel yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, there, there's not a quick fix for that issue necessarily, but one tool that helps a lot of people is to sort of do the bedtime brain dump um, where you can, you know, just keep yourself a journal or a notepad or something like that. And when it's time to wind down, sort of write down the things that you're worried about, write down the things that you don't want to forget, write down the thing that's going to wake you up at two in the morning because you're like, oh my God, did I forget to, you know, whatever it is for, for the next day. And that's one. And then another one that can really help with that brain noise piece is um, establishing some type of mindfulness or stress reduction practice during the daytime. And so even if you're like, no, that's not for me, that's like wishy-washy, hippy-dippy stuff, like try it out and see if you can maybe find like a five minute mindfulness practice, because what that does is it teaches you to tone your parasympathetic nervous system. And that's the the rest and digest part of your nervous system. And if you can practice using that, just like you can train your muscles in your strength training, right? You can tone your parasympathetic nervous system, and then you'll be able to access it when you need it. And you're trying to relax again. So that might be another way that you could work on that brain noise piece. Absolutely helpful. And I'll say that I think like the word meditation kind of throws people into a bit of a funk because there's so much years of stuff associated with it. But I heard it described recently that we should probably reframe meditation as a really a practice of refocusing. Like I think a lot of people feel like they fail at meditation because they can't clear their brain. uh, And that's not the point. The point is that you're not going to clear your brain and you're constantly practicing on that like refocusing center. And that is actually like the whole purpose of it. And if you can spend like three, I mean, three minutes doing that in your day, great. (laughs) Or like take a deep breath, 
it can yeah. help a lot. Yeah, I love that refocusing. And I think another way to think um, about that, if if the sort of meditation doesn't sound good, is think about breathing, a breathing practice or a breathwork practice. That's a very powerful tool for the nervous system as well. And it's also, you know, part of a lot of meditation traditions, but it doesn't have to be sort of thought of as meditation, even just practicing some of those techniques, like a box breathing or a four, seven, eight breath or things like that can be a very helpful tool. It only takes like two minutes before seven, eight for it to work, right? Like it doesn't, yeah. it's not a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And if you're not familiar with that one, you can just Google it. Um, there's some great videos about it, four, seven, eight breath. Um, and it's really a, a wonderful tool um, that you can do in just a few minutes. And it, you can almost feel the effects of it in your body really quickly if you get used to how to do it. Well, I was just writing a note to make sure to include that, a link to that in the show notes. Awesome. Yeah. Great. So thanks. I think that's a great idea. Um, what else do we have? Yeah, the, the last one on the sort of uh, taxonomy here would be bed noise. And that's what I think of as environment stuff. So what's going on in your space that might be disrupting your sleep? And so that's, you know, is it dark in your room? Do you have, you know, blinking lights in there? Is it hard to make it dark because you're sleeping in the daytime? Maybe you're a shift worker. Is it, um, is it too warm or too cool in your room? Is it hard for you to get still because you have a dog in your bed? You know, whatever it is that might make it hard to feel sort of comfortable and restful in your environment that, that you might want to think about making some tweaks there. And a really big one in this category, and I'm so sorry because nobody likes to hear this, is don't bring your phone to bed with you. <laughs> Um, there's two yeah. reasons for that, right? And one is the the blue light from the screens um, is disruptive to sleep. We know that from, from scientific studies about the effect of blue light in your eyes and your sleep and your brain. Um, but you can't fix that by using night shift mode or wearing those glasses. You just can't, it's still there. But even beyond the light exposure, it's the mental stimulation. Nothing you're doing on your phone in bed at night is calming you down, I promise, right? You're scrolling through Instagram, you're scrolling through the news, you're watching videos, you know, you're checking your email, like none of that is sending the signal to your body and your brain, like it's time to sleep, right? It's saying like, oh, what's over here? You know, oh, shiny, like, oh, we got to do this tomorrow. And none of that is conducive to sleep. So please put your phone to bed, um, figure out how to do that. I, that's a really hard one for people. And I say a lot of times um, when you're trying to pick, you know, what's the right step for me to work on first? Um, the one that sounds like, oh, I could never do that. Or I don't think that would be important for me. Usually that's the one that would like flip the switch for you <laughs> and you're resisting it yeah. for, for some reason because you don't want to give it up. And if you go back to that curiosity piece, you would say, well, what would happen if... Um, or why am I feeling so strongly about this? And you're able to sort of answer yourself with honesty about that. You might make some progress. Very true. And I would say like, if somebody's not willing to even rip off the, if you're not willing to rip off the bandaid, like even something is putting your phone in do not disturb. So nobody can message you or like deleting certain apps from your phone that like push that dopamine cycle. Like it's, it's not ideal, but refer let's not make perfect the opposite or the enemy of the good right so like your phone is probably a problem if you're not putting it to sleep so let's make it a little bit better 
And if that improves the issue, then maybe you need to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, that brings up um, my next point, which I think is really important for a lot of people, which is if that improves the issue. And I think what you need to do in order to understand, you know, did this change that I made improve my sleep is you need some way of keeping track of your sleep while you're trying to improve it and make changes. So runners are great at tracking things, right? We love all of our data. We have our, you know, our whole training log. We know exactly our splits for everything. And we don't really necessarily apply that to other areas as well as we do to our running. And I'm not saying you have to track your sleep, like, you know, with one of those sleep devices, it will tell you exactly how much time it thinks you were in slow wave sleep and all of this. Uh, it can be much, much simpler than that. Um, but if you don't keep track at all, then it's going to be hard for you to see, are you making progress from one of the little changes that you make? And so um, what I would recommend is you can just do this like on a piece of paper, right? Or a notebook or use a training, add a, add a column to your training log that you use for running. Or like in my practice, I use a, a sleep tracker, um, you know, that, or a holistic training log that's got a column for sleep. And, you know, I have versions of those things that I use with my clients. And if you want to um, use those, you can find them on my website. They're free, but um, it doesn't really matter what you use as long as you have some way of saying, how did I do with sleep? Because especially with sleep, every night of sleep will not be perfect, right? Even if you do everything right, right? You, you put your phone to bed at eight o'clock and you get up same time every day, you go to bed at the same time every day, you quit caffeine, you know, all of the things. And you're like, I did everything perfect. You will still have nights where your sleep sucks and that's okay, right? A single night of terrible sleep is not going to destroy you. Um, but because it's not so one-to-one, um, -one, you know, behavior, and then outcome, you need to track it over time to really see the benefits and see the changes. And so if you're working on say, making your bedtime 15 minutes earlier, and you track that over like two or three weeks, you'll have a better sense of how did you sleep? How did you feel? How did you perform? Then if you do it for two nights and say, well, that sucked, <laughs> you know? Um, so I really recommend trying to track your sleep. Um, in quality improvement in healthcare, um, one of the things that we do when we set up a, a project is to say, how will I know that a change resulted in an improvement? And this is one way that I recommend that you do that when you're trying to make changes in your sleep. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Like there's two things I kind of wanted to touch on in that. So one would be tracking sleep, right? Um, like I wear an aura ring. I got it because I was like working night shift and I wanted, you know, the impetus to do better. So like um, how accurate and are these devices that track sleep? And like what you mentioned some of the positives. Is there is there a downside to tracking sleep sometimes? Like I've heard... Um, Inigo Semnalan, who's like a Tour de France coach, and he's been on Peter Tia's podcast a couple of times. He he uses HRV trackers. He uses sleep trackers with these world-class athletes, but he definitely doesn't use them like during the tour or like even the week prior. Cause he's like, the last thing I need is this dude to know that he slept badly. So like where, how can we use these to be most effective and not get in our own head? Yeah, that's a great question. And so 
the technology in these devices varies. Um, some of them, they use combinations of like accelerometers that show your movement. Um, some of them use um, a pulse oximeter to look at your blood oxygen level. They look at heart rate variability, like you mentioned, HRV. Um, some of them use temperature. And so they, they have a variety of inputs. And then Every device is a little bit different, whether it's Aura or Whoop or, you know, what's on your Garmin or, you know, there, there's lots of them out there now. And they all have a, an algorithm in which they feed the data points that they can collect from the technology that you're wearing on your finger or your wrist or wherever it is. And then they come up with some type of score, right? And they're using... Um, they're using data points to make assumptions. And, and that's, you know, that's fine. And some of them are probably more accurate than others. Um, and none of them though, are, are medical information, right? So I think it's important to remember that, that, yes. that it's not the same thing as a sleep study. So if you are mm -hmm. actually experiencing like sleep difficulties beyond, you know, some, a little bit of disruption in sleep here and there, and it's something that's more significant than that, then this is not a substitute for going to a sleep lab and getting a polysomnography test, or they have some that, that are home-based now, but still they're, they're using medical equipment so it's not medical equipment right it's it's consumer equipment and it's fun yeah <laughs> it's absolutely fun. true um and the best way to look at that data is to look at larger trends over time and not to focus on any single day because both um any single day of sleep can can be a, a disaster and that doesn't really mean anything but also those devices can malfunction they can have been you know in a funny position and the data is like wonky and so if the data looks like totally wrong it might be and so I wouldn't yeah. ever get too obsessed about that. And then you also sure. have to know yourself, right? Some people love data and they're really good at, at looking at it and saying like, oh, that's interesting. And some people are very obsessive about it. And they say, okay, I have to optimize this score. This score exists. So it has to be perfect. And you have to know yes. that about yourself, right? <laughs> Um, if you're the yeah. type of person who, who can't let it go, if, if your numbers aren't what you want them to be, then you might find that it's counterproductive to use a device like that. Um, but if you're a person who, who really just is like, let's look at all of the inputs and put them all in, in sort of a, a big bowl here and look at all of the data together and use the data from my aura ring, you know, as one input in this whole, you know, um, array of information that also includes things like, how did I feel? Right. You know, what was my perception of effort? How awake did I feel? You know, what was my mental clarity? Like that kind of subject of data that your device is never going to be able to give you and look at it all together. And I think that's really helpful. Um, and I just agree. like, yeah, just like with people who maybe struggle on the run with being too data focused um, on, on their watch, something that I might suggest is, okay, we'll, we'll wear it, but like hide it under your sleeve and don't look at it until later. And then you can look at your data sort of in a more trending way. I would recommend the same thing for people who maybe want the sleep data, but, but struggle with being a little bit too obsessed about it is like collect it and then look at it all together, you know, as a broader trend later on, instead of trying to um, micromanage any individual data point over like one day. Absolutely. I would also say that the like general aggregate assessors of these devices tend to be terrible. So like the most useful thing I, I've found from this is like temperature is really helpful. Like actual individual metrics of HRV is really helpful. The sleep score it gives me is garbage. Like every day. <laughs> it's, it has no correlation with how I feel. And I've done this for years. 
but like the temperature is a pretty good indicator of if I slept poorly or if I like ate too close to bed, if my heart rate drops really late in the night, it means I ate too close to bed. Like these things tend to be helpful. And I'd say the same thing about your run. Like when your Garmin tells you you had an unproductive run half the time, it's bullshit. We know yeah, that's great, Garmin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a liar. Because it usually <laughs> meant you just did a really good zone two run for like two hours and it was solid, but it, it's going to tell you it's unproductive because it wants you to race every single training session. So, yeah. Yeah. You yeah, know, I think it's just so important, important to remember that, that those things are, they're computers, right? They're machines, they're programmed, you know, with a particular algorithm and they're not smart. Like they don't, <laughs> they don't actually know anything, right? They, you, you put numbers into them and there's a, a calculation that goes on and they spit out an answer. And so it doesn't, um, it doesn't take all of the data into account. It just takes the things that it can measure. And I think actually people probably would be oftentimes surprised at how little data goes into those things compared to the claims of what they spit out. Um, what, yes, what actually absolutely. gets measured is usually very, a very small amount of, of information. Oh, for sure. And I mean, like just to use the Garmin as a very easy example, cause I'm sure pretty much everybody who's listening to this has used some version of that. Like, Garmin doesn't know your actual VO2 max, largely because you probably haven't done that many VO2 max workouts with it. Like one, it can't anyway, because you don't have a mask strapped to your face. And then two, like most runners aren't doing that on a regular basis, unless you're like in a VO2 training cycle. So it just has no idea. It's only as good as the data you're giving it. And you're not giving it the right kind of data most of the time. So yeah. it's absurd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. When I first got a Garmin that told me my VO2 max, I laughed. I was like, what? I don't even know what mine is on, on my Garmin because like, yeah, I just know it's, it's useless. Yeah, it's, it's silly. Um, but again, the devices can be super useful and they can be oh, useful yeah. at trending over time. And what one thing they can be very useful for is teaching us the correlations between behaviors that we might have and things that might change in our physiology. And um, Absolutely. so you can definitely use devices like that for that. And that's really helpful. Like I've seen people use the, um, the devices that measure HRV um, and say like, oh, you know what? When I drink alcohol, my HRV tanks. And that might be a useful piece of information, you know, not necessarily because of what your actual sleep score was in the morning, but because it taught you to recognize a correlation that you might not have seen otherwise. Or you might have been back in that bucket of, I don't want to know this. I don't want to know this. Don't tell me because I'm attached to this behavior. And then you can see like, oh, I actually can't deny that when I do this, it shows me that. And so Absolutely. it can be really useful in that way. Yeah. Like, I mean, I just use myself as a quick example, like two things that I've definitely learned is one is caffeine. Like I, um, thought for years that I wasn't affected by caffeine in regards to sleep. And then as soon as you start, as soon as I started to take data, like if I drink it within like eight hours of bedtime, my REM sleep tanks one, um, two, if I eat too close to bed, my heart rate drops like really late in the night instead of earlier. So these are things that I didn't think were a big deal for over a decade and absolutely affect me from a like recovery standpoint. So these are the kind of things that you can really learn from this, these tools. Yeah, exactly. And those are, those are all great examples actually of, of things to consider um, tweaking when you're looking at your sleep as well as, so I always talk about doing a substance reset and that includes alcohol. It includes caffeine. It includes sometimes medications that you might be taking. Never like stop taking your medications without talking to your healthcare provider, but sometimes you can adjust the time of day that you take them um, or your doses need adjusting. And then, you know, other things that are substances that can change um, sleep architecture 
are things that our body makes. And like one of those big ones is adrenaline, right? So <laughs> if you're like one of those people who likes to watch scary movies late at night before bed, you might actually find that you're experiencing a physiological effect from that adrenaline in your body late at night. And so, you know, that's another way that that substance might be affecting your sleep architecture. And you mentioned, you know, that, that your REM sleep was affected and REM sleep is something that we know is affected um, with alcohol use. And so that's a really important um, thing to consider. And so absolutely devices are great for showing you those types of things. Although you could do it without too, it just won't give you the same sort of specificity of information. And if you just use a sleep log, you might also find like, I feel anxious and tired the day after I um, had coffee at 2 p.m. And what that might be telling you is that you didn't get enough REM sleep, right? It won't tell you that in the same way, but it will tell you the same outcome of information right which is that this isn't good for me and let's see what happens if i tweak it absolutely and that makes a ton of sense and tracks my personal experience really well so if we look at like i love the substance reset idea if we look at some things that might we might need to look at you mentioned uh, alcohol caffeine um adrenaline like <laughs> on the on a quick side note uh the scary movie thing is amazing to me because i know that there's um quite a few people that I've talked to that TV watching TV a little like somewhat close to bedtime not like not in bed but somewhat close to bedtime doesn't actually seem to bother them they thought it did because they were watching like Game of Thrones as soon as they started watching something like really calming <laughs> it completely went away <laughs> yeah you just need to like wind down but other things that might affect like what about food marijuana any of these things like how might these affect our sleep Yeah. um, So food, um, you know, you mentioned like eating too close to bedtime can be something that has disrupted your sleep. And so, so that's a big one. I think that trying to have, if, especially if you're like one of those people who eats um, dinner as your larger meal of the day to try to separate it from bedtime by a couple hours, um, if you can, because certainly the digestive process can be a little bit disruptive to getting into deep sleep. So that's another one. Um, Marijuana, I think is kind of a mixed bag. Um, we don't have as much research on the effects of marijuana as we do of other substances like alcohol because of its legal status. Um, and so, you know, to, to look at, um, actual like randomized controlled trials, there really aren't any, um, in, in some more epidemiological studies where they've collected data and people have reported their behavior or not. Um, again, it's kind of a mixed bag, um, probably changes sleep architecture, meaning the way that you go through stages of sleep, including deep sleep and REM sleep, which serve different and important functions. Um, but again, not as clear. And, and same thing with CBD or cannabidiol, which is like a hugely popular sleep supplement at the moment. Um, there's not a ton of evidence one way or the other about that. Um, people seem to feel that it's beneficial. We don't know, you know, there's just not a, a, enough evidence for me to recommend for or against it. Sorry, just laughing. Cause like, it's supposed to solve everything under the sun and like, it's just, yes. yeah, yeah. These are, this is one of those examples of mixed or uh, mixed quality data. Let's call it that. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Um, and you know, I think that that tends to fall like, like a CBD tends to fall into that category of things that people are trying to do to hack their sleep. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I always like to say about hacks, like bake your cake before you start decorating it or like build your house before you pick out the wallpaper, right? I it's really like, not, like those analogies a Not lot. that those things are not uh, nice. They, they could be great if you have the basics nailed, but nobody does. I have yet to meet somebody who has the basics nailed. 
Um, and I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. So, so I would say, um, yeah, start, start with those more basic things. Um, another really important sleep behavior is to try to be consistent with your bedtime and your wake time. And this is a struggle for people and it includes weekends, right? Your body doesn't know that it's Saturday, right? Yeah. You're ahead of me. It's exactly where I wanted to go next. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so figuring out, you know, how to make that work in your life is a a step. And I think is is tricky for a lot of people, but if it's, that's something that you struggle with, see if you can work on it, give it a try. Um, try to stick to a routine, figure out what that timing is going to be for you that works and then try to stick with it. Um, so I think that's another really, uh, good one to work on. If that's you, if you're one of those people who's all over the place with your schedule. Yeah. And this, could this be another instance where like trying not to make the perfect, the enemy of the good would be a good idea. Like if you have to wake up at three 30 in the morning for work on work days, and you want to have a mild social life so you don't have to go to bed at 8, 8 p.m. on the weekend. Like six is still better than 12. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's a really good point. I would say you don't ever need to be perfect about anything that you do, right? And, and go for the principle more than you go for like nailing the exact perfect thing every time. And I think, yes, because we are probably talking to a lot of type A endurance athletes, like don't let that become a stressor, right? Just try to stick to it in principle. And also if you stray from it here and there, that's fine. Make it most of the time and that will serve you really well. Um, but yes, that's a really important one. Your, your body um, has a, a very strong drive to follow a circadian rhythm and if you're all over the place and then if you do that you also tend to lean into other unhealthy habits like you are maybe staying up late and you're drinking and then you're using extra caffeine in the morning to combat it and so it it sort of spirals out of control (laughs) into into those other unhealthy habits absolutely i mean so if we look at setting some of these habits like what might be a good I don't know, nighttime routine or morning routine or like setup that we could do to make this consistent. I think the most important thing is to start where you are, right? So take stock of what you're doing right now, of what your bedtimes and evenings look like right now. And don't try to like do a complete 180 because that doesn't work, right? You, you you might do it for two weeks and be like, well, that was cool. And then you slowly slip out of it because it doesn't fit your lifestyle for some reason. So I would say that would be my, my number one piece of advice is take stock of where you are right now and then pick something to change. And it doesn't mean change everything, right? It means pick something that you think you can do and that you think is important and start with that. So rather than like, what's the perfect like nighttime routine, you know, magazines love to do this. They're like, how does... LeBron James, get ready for bed. Or, you know, you're like, yes. I don't, that doesn't affect my life. He's a professional athlete <laughs> and like, I'm me. So like, I need to yeah. know, you know, I know that I need to get up to get my run in before work at 530. So what I need to do is set up a routine that's going to allow me to do that. Right. And so I would say, what's the first step that I think I could take that might help me with that? And usually I don't have to tell somebody what that step is, right? They can figure it out for themselves in their own life. And then it's like, let's figure out how to do that one step. And so for a lot of people, um, that also involves like what, who else is involved in your life, in your day-to-day routine. So if you've got a partner or you've got kids or you've got some other structure with people around you, um, if your, uh, bedtime and morning routines are probably going to affect those other people, 
right? And so you need to bring people along with you on your journey, unless you're, um, you know, a a single by yourself person with no other people who depend on you or, or um, are affected by you. And in which case do whatever you want. (laughs) Um, But And I want to know your secrets, but if that's not you, then get those people on board. And I, what I find is if somebody really, really um, feels strongly that they want to get better and they want to make a change and they want to make a positive change. And they honestly and openly tell other people, like, here's what I want to do. And here's why the people who love them are like, sweet, let me help you. They're not like, what a drag. Right. So being open and honest about that and bringing people in, you know, whether it's changing your sleep routines or any other thing that you're doing, like that's another sort of key piece of advice they have is just be open and honest about it and bring people with you. Yeah, it's so important. And I think it's not nearly discussed enough, especially when we're talking about keeping a consistent sleep schedule, because like if you are on this schedule and that doesn't work for your partner or kids or whatever, like it is eventually going to fall apart. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, if you're trying to, um, get into a bedtime routine too, and one of the things that might be helpful for you is trying to get to bed a little bit earlier, which is something that I hear from a lot of people, a lot of times, um, you could try a tool like just, uh, auditing your time a little bit in the, in the evenings or, or really all day. But, you know, there's this sort of trendy thing where people are like, well, I'm going to go see how I spend my entire day in 15 minute increments. And uh, that's kind of intense, but it, it does show you when you say, I don't have time for something that you actually maybe do and you might be just apportioning your time in a way that you're not fully aware of. And so a tool like that, yeah, can be helpful in freeing up the 15 minutes that you need. And you might find that you're taking it from, oh, that was my Facebook time or um, that was my sit there and stare out the window and not do anything time. Or sometimes it's even that you steal 15 minutes from something else that you think is a good, healthy habit. Like if you're going out for a a long run, you might be better served to cut your run by 15 minutes. um, If that means that you're going to get 15 minutes more sleep. And again, it's individual and it doesn't translate one-to-one, but that's something that you might always want to consider is how am I spending that time and where can I find it? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it is, <laughs> I think most of us have more time than we think we do. And it's not to say you're not busy. Like I'm busy. A lot of people are busy. I train people who have like six kids and work a job and all these things. Like, but I don't know. I saw the schedule of someone. It was not Ariana Huffington, but it was someone like that who like gets literally 2000 emails a day, answers most of them, runs an entire company, all these things. And like, it was one of these like 15 minute breakdown things. I'm like, oh, I'm not. I'm busy. <laughs> mm, like, yeah. yeah. And she has and assistance it, and all this stuff. So like mm-hmm. there's support and it's a whole different setup, but it's like, if I actually took my day in 15 minute increments, I, there's a couple things I could cut if we're being honest. Yeah. And it's, a, it's not even a question of like, you don't have to optimize every moment of your day, Absolutely right? But, but it's, it's bringing that awareness of like, where is my, where am I spending my time? And are the things that I believe I want to be prioritizing the things that I'm actually that. doing. And so, yes. yeah, finding that balance can be really helpful. And, you know, it's another place where tracking, like, what am I doing with my time can give you information that you can then decide what to do with. And it's not to mean that you have to do this for the rest of your life, but it's to say that can give me the information that will help me to understand where I'm at. And when I say start where you are, for a lot of people, figuring out where am I right now is the first step to what's the first um, change that I might like to make. 100%. 
Absolutely. I think it's just really easy. I mean, I don't even think it's people's faults. I think it's like really easy to end up in these like dopamine cycle traps where you pop on Facebook to see what's going on with your friends. And then suddenly it's been 45 minutes when you meant for it to take 20. So like that kind of stuff, it's really easy to fall into. Yeah, it really is. And so, you know, it, all of these areas wind up being connected, right? And if we say that, that time management is connected to sleep, is connected to stress management, is connected, you know, and it, and it is. And so we might find that the the thing that you, you wanted to work on when, when you first came in and said, like, I need coaching might have been something different. And then we wind up digging into how you're spending your time on Facebook, even though that on the surface might have very little to do with going to bed earlier. It in fact does. And so being sort of open to viewing your, your life and your changes and your priorities in that way can, can be such a powerful thing. Absolutely. Speaking of time management, I just realized we've gone a little over an hour. Um, I'm still good. Do you still have some time? Awesome. Okay. So a couple more questions. One I wanted to ask is about naps, the very mixed opinions on naps. Um, They don't work very well for me, um, but I know they work very well for some people. What do we have on that? Yeah, there's um, naps can be helpful um, for people who um, could use the extra sleep. And so oftentimes people who are training really hard can benefit from naps. Um, we're actually going through a whole sleep cycle um, will will sort of help you to jumpstart like that tissue repair process or hormonal process. So yes, they can be helpful. Um, another thing is like just that kind of cat nap can be helpful. And there's data that suggests that like that 20 minute um, not reaching deep sleep can be very refreshing. It can boost alertness. It can boost sort of sense of well-being. Um, what I would recommend if you want to try napping is don't do it close to bedtime. Um, the best time for a nap is like um, six to seven hours after you woke up. And so for a lot of people that like right after lunch would be a good time for a nap. That might be a little bit later than that, but that might be a great time to try to get it in. And you can just try it and see how it, it feels if you can do it. Um, not everybody has the luxury of time for a nap, but that, um, cat nap is like a low risk thing that, that 20 minute nap, especially if it's earlier in the day. And if you're a person who really could use some extra sleep, um, a longer nap in the early afternoon can be a good thing too. But some people like you find that it doesn't help them, that it makes them feel groggy, that they wake up feeling like hot garbage, in which case exactly. get your sleep at night, right. And save that, save that hour that you were going to nap, um, do something else during that time and go to bed an hour earlier. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's nailed it to a T. I always feel groggy and it just doesn't help. But I know for some people it's game changer. So yeah, cool. and lots of pro athletes nap, um, pro runners nap, especially like if they, if you run doubles, um, that might be something that you want to consider like, between your morning and your afternoon session. If you have time for a short nap, that could be something that boosts adaptation because, you know, taking it way back to the beginning, um, the adaptation doesn't happen when you're running, right? It happens in between. And so sleep definitely boosts adaptation. For sure. So if we're looking also at like other things that, so the thing I really definitely want to ask you as a medical professional, like what about sleep aids? So be it our, our ambience or our um, melatonins or whatever, like what can we take away from these? Are they, are they good? Are they causing issues? Are they causing us to pass out like alcohol and not actually making us sleep? Like what do these things do and are they necessary and or helpful? Yeah. So I, I think all of those things, they 
can be very helpful. So, so drugs like Ambien and um, Lunesta, you know, the, the, they call them the Z drugs. They're non-benzodiazepine sleep drugs that are by prescription. Um, they can help people in sort of acute circumstances where their sleep is disrupted. And that can be, you know, there was like a, a trauma in your life or maybe in travel or something like that, where regular sleep is not happening for some sort of time limited external reason, or for some people who have um, like true sleep phase disorders. Um, sometimes those things can be helpful as well, but they definitely alter normal sleep architecture. So the sleep that you get taking a sleep drug like that is not um, qualitatively the same as the sleep that you get from natural normal sleep. However, when we're comparing um, the outcomes, right? We're not comparing what would happen to you with healthy, natural, normal sleep versus taking a sleep drug. We're usually comparing what would happen to you with this insomnia that you're experiencing for whatever reason versus taking the sleep drug. And so in certain circumstances, those drugs can be really helpful because they're basically limiting the damage from insomnia. You're not getting perfect sleep when you're using them, but you're getting better sleep than you are if you're not sleeping at all. And so Absolutely. I would say use them, you know, in conjunction with your medical professional in limited circumstances, if you have an exit strategy, right? They're not meant to be like, oh, this is just how I sleep. You know, I take an ambient and then I get up in the morning. That's yeah, not that's, like a uh, long-term strategy. Under Understated thing. I think most of, most of these should be, most things that we're taking like that should often be viewed as an exit strategy. And maybe you never actually make the exit, but it's at least a thing that we should be working towards, right? Like it's, if they're a tool, they're not designed to be a crutch. Yeah. Yeah. And for most people, if you are experiencing that type of sleep disruption, there's something underlying it that we should try to address. Um, and sometimes that's not true, right? There are some people who just have these pure primary sleep disorders and those medications are the best that we have for them. But for most people, there's something else that needs to be addressed. And I think that the danger for, for people is when they use these medications is that they work, right? And that they then sort of stop you from addressing the underlying issue because you're like, oh, this works. I don't need to fix it anymore. Yes. Um, so yeah. So keep that in mind. If you, if you go that route again, not that you shouldn't, they can be really useful in the right circumstances, as long as you're using them that way and not as like, this was the fix. And hundred percent. And then what about the only hormone that we can buy over the counter melatonin? Like what is, how does that work? And is it addicted to all these things? Like what do we got for melatonin? Yeah. So melatonin, um, your body makes melatonin, right? And the best evidence for using mel melatonin as a supplement is um, when you need to adjust the timing and cycle that you're sleeping on. Um, and so for people who are maybe traveling time zones or doing shift work, and you need to give your body the signal of like, hey, oh, lights out time, um, melatonin is useful in those circumstances. And that's where we have the best evidence for it is for, for jet lag and for shift work. Um, and the doses of melatonin that are useful in those circumstances are actually much, much lower than a lot of what's sold over the counter as melatonin supplements. Like we're talking like an order of magnitude different, like yeah. 0.3 milligrams, not 10 milligrams. Um, and yeah. so again, melatonin is probably not harmful, even if you take a buttload of it, but it's probably also not doing a whole lot for you unless you're taking it in a sort of specific and directed way. I used to take it for shift work and I used to take like five milligrams at 2 PM every day. And like, I did not at the time know that it was egregiously high. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And again, like it's not like um with other like medications where a dose like that is probably going to cause you difficulty, but it also just doesn't seem like it's necessary. I, mean, I can and tell you they some... groggy, like mm, yeah. really groggy. Like I'd yeah. wake up at 9 p.m. and just be, it was like a shot with a tranquilizer, right? So like that's, that's mostly what I experienced from it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, again, it, you could try it and see how it works for you. And if it find, you know, you find that you get benefit from it, then great. It's it's not likely to be addictive. It's, you know, anytime you're taking a hormone from outside of your body and putting it into your body, it has the potential to disrupt your body's normal production of that hormone sure. um, because hormones work, the endocrine system works in, in feedback loops. That's how it regulates itself. And so um, you can mess with that when you're taking hormones um, externally. Uh, but with melatonin, that doesn't seem to be like at least a huge primary concern for most people. So it's generally considered to be pretty safe. Awesome. Yeah. That makes a bunch of sense and tracks my experience as well. So I think that's most of what I had, I guess, like the last thing I'd really like to ask before we start to close out or one, like, what are some like very simple shifts or things you can do if you're struggling a little bit with sleep um, in order to start making these changes. And I guess, is it different if you're struggling to like fall asleep versus struggling to stay asleep? Yeah. Um, the, the biggest ones that I see um, work for people are to um, look at your caffeine and alcohol use. I think that people don't necessarily want to do that because we like those things. <laughs> um, but give it a try, right? And and see what happens. So alcohol at bedtime makes you sleepy, but it definitely disrupts your REM sleep. And so if you're a person who wakes up in the middle of the night, um, look at that, you know, and I'm not saying you have to quit. I'm not saying you have to give it up, but, but see, does it have an impact on nights when you had a glass of wine, at, you know, before bed, do you wake up in the middle of the night? right? Do you feel anxious in the morning? Is that related? Um, and same thing with caffeine. So the people's people's um, ability to metabolize caffeine varies widely. There are people who legitimately can drink espresso after dinner and not have disrupted sleep. And I don't understand how that works because if I touch anything with caffeine in it afternoon, I'm like wired all day. Um, <laughs> but, but that's like, there is, there's that inherent variability. Yeah. And so you won't know which one you are um, unless you try it. You know, you can order a fancy genetic test and pay a lot of money for that. And they'll tell you if you're a fast or a slow metabolizer, but you can find that out really easily. Just by trying it. <laughs> I would also say like, just as someone who's been there, like try it, even if you think it doesn't matter. Yes. It, it might. yes. There are you some know. people like Andrew Huberman's actually famously not affected by caffeine. He's one of those people who can have espresso. Like he's one of the people in the zeitgeist who is one of those people. I thought I was one of those people. Very wrong. So yeah. I'm so glad you said that. Well, try it even if you don't think it matters, even if you don't think it applies to you, because we love to hold on to the things that we really want to do because we've convinced ourselves that, that it doesn't matter. And so if it doesn't matter, then let it go for a little bit and see, please try, please try. Even if you think it doesn't, the only thing you have to lose is like the, the couple of times that you didn't do the thing that you wanted to do. And I, if you're a runner, you can do hard things. So like do those hard things for a little bit and see. Yeah. Like do it for a week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can do that. I, I promise. And you come away with information, right? And then you can decide what to do with that information. And if you decide it's not worth it for you to make that change, then fine. At least you made that decision based on 
information and that's that's up to you. Um, so, so that's something that I would really recommend for people um, who are having trouble with that as a, as a sort of a low hanging fruit place to start. Um, another one is going back to that regular thing about your phone in bed. Uh, you know, I, I think that if you do that, um, try and see what happens by not doing it. I think that can both make it hard for you to fall asleep because you've got your brain going at bedtime. Um, and then it can also wake you up because you're sort of rebounding and ruminating. And so I think the the phone use in bed feeds both of those things. And that's another really common one that I see with people who I work with both in clinical practice and in coaching. Um, the caffeine and the alcohol on the phone are probably the two biggest ones and they contribute to both um, falling asleep and staying asleep issues. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And you know, it's so funny. It's like, I, yeah, people will ask me, you know, what's the medical solution to this? And I'm like, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I keep coming back to like these really, really like basic, obvious sounding things. And it's like, did I go to, you know, 14 years of school to like tell you to put your phone down? But yeah, I did. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, uh, it was a, it was a, weird day when I realized that like all the nutrition information just leads you to not eat a ton of ultra processed food. It's yeah, like, exactly. Like, oh, cool. I'm glad I've spent a lot of money and time learning that. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> and it goes back to like building the house before you put up the wallpaper. And it's like, you, you probably learned some pretty wallpaper in your nutrition oh, studies yeah. too. Right. And that's great for people who have a solid house, Yeah, but most people don't. Yeah. hundred percent. Myself well, included. <laughs> not on a, on a fairly regular basis, especially depending on the training cycle. So cool. Um, anything else you would like to add today? You know, we covered a lot of ground here and I, and I think it's been, um, a really useful conversation and I'm glad that we got to go there. Um, I, you know, I would say my sort of big takeaway is try things and track how they work. Um, and that applies not just to sleep, it applies to anything else that you might want to do to improve your health. Um, and you know, track it, however works best for you. You can, you can use the tools that I have for you. You can use your devices. You can use a plain old piece of paper, just whatever works. Um, and, and go from there, you know, study yourself, like be, be your own, um, subject and kind of see what works for you. Love that. And like on the note of some of the tools you've made, like if we wanted to get in touch with you or find you or find some of those tools, where might we do that? Yeah, thanks for asking. The best place to find me online, you can go to my website. It's flowerpower.health. And I have a page specifically for runners, flowerpower.health slash runners. And that's where you can find lots of those tools. I have sleep tools. I have um, things about injury. I have all kinds of stuff that you might enjoy and lots of articles. Um, and then you can also find me on Instagram at flowerpower.health, where I put out some fun graphics and a little bit of sass here and there. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, appreciate your Instagram quite a bit. So thank you so much. I appreciate it Hang on for a second. I really am glad you reached out and glad we did this. Yeah, I am too. It's been really fun chatting with you. You know, it's so funny when you listen to somebody on a podcast a lot, I get used to hearing your voice and then I feel like I know you and I forget that you don't know me yet, but <laughs> now we uh, yeah. fix that. No, I completely know how that goes. I feel like I know so many people and yet they don't even know I exist. It's one of those very strange things. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Elizabeth. Hang out for one sec. Thank you everybody who listened to this and we'll be back soon with another one. 
Thank you for listening to the show. To be clear, I'm not a doctor nor a registered dietitian, and nothing you heard was medical advice. You should always speak with a qualified medical professional before making any changes to your training regimen. If you enjoy the podcast or found it useful, please take a couple seconds to give it a rating or share it with a friend. Every little bit helps. And if you want more of this information, please head to the Trail and Ultra Running Nutrition Group on Facebook. You'll be in good company with other like-minded people who like to do hard stuff outside.